I'll just pray before I speak. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I pray that everything I will say will be helpful and guided by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that in all our hearts, your word will speak to our inmost being and bring us closer to knowing what it is you desire from us and desire for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're continuing this evening to look at this beautiful letter written from Paul to the Philippians. Andrew spoke to us about the first section of this letter up to chapter up to verse 11 in chapter 1, explaining how Paul was writing to the Philippians, saying how thankful he was for them, rejoicing and urging them to rejoice too in the confidence he and they could have that God would finish the good work he had begun in them. And then two weeks ago, of course we didn't have an evening service last week because of the Love Stafford celebration, but two weeks ago Alan spoke to us from Um, verses 12 to 26 with the simple message rejoice and Alan spoke of how Paul was exhorting the Philippians to rejoice in their present circumstances just as they could rejoice for their future assured that just as the gospel progresses through any and every circumstance so their progress and salvation were sure as they partnered in the gospel and Alan reminded us this is just as true for us today and asked us to think Do we rejoice in every circumstance? And as Alan said, Paul could speak of this with authority. As he was in prison, as he wrote, he truly was rejoicing in all circumstances. The first part of the passage we're looking at this evening is from verse 27 to the end of chapter 1. And this is followed by those beautiful verses in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul reminds the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as I was reading about this letter, I realised that as Philippi was a Roman colony, many in the church there were Romans. And in that time, a Roman colony was a little piece of Rome, where the Latin language was spoken, Roman dress was worn, and the citizens looked to Roman authority. And Paul is saying here, You know I'm a Roman citizen too. You know as well as I that a Roman citizen, wherever they are, must live and act as a Roman does. And we, Paul says to the Philippians, we have an even higher duty, no matter where we are, to act and live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's where Paul goes on to describe what this means, to stand firm in the one spirit and to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. And Paul writes that this is necessary because of the opposition to the gospel they will face. Verse 28, I think, is a little bit difficult. And Paul uh, is saying that the grace received from God to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel is a sign of salvation. Um, But when he says that it it will make others um, destroyed because they don't, is he saying that those who oppose the gospel face destruction 
and that therefore there's no cause to fear them. So the Philippians and us today uh, can have confidence um, striving for the sake of the gospel because it is a sign of our salvation and we don't need to fear those who oppose us um, because we, we have no fear. God's salvation is for us and God will deal with those other people. But of course it's our desire and prayer that they come to know what we know. In the last two verses, Paul reminds the Philippians that suffering is part of being a Christian, sharing in Christ's suffering. The use of the word granted, that we're granted suffering, it's not that suffering is inevitable, but if we suffer for our faith, it's an insurance that we belong to Jesus and we're walking in his way. So if we look at these few verses, what does it mean for our lives today? Three things. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. This means that we should be unified, standing firm in one spirit, and to strive with one another as one for the faith of the gospel. So I think the questions are, do we conduct ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God? Can others tell what distinguishes us as citizens of the kingdom of God? And as I was looking at this, I thought, well, we can leave dress out of this, but some people might think that's an identifying factor. Anyway... But the two serious ones are our language and the authority we recognise. Do we speak a different language? I don't just mean the words that we use, but the way we speak to people. Are we noted for patience and kindness, gentleness, joy? Do people notice that we're loving, that our language is peaceful, full of goodness, patience and self-control? And I suddenly realised that, yes, I have listed the fruits of the Spirit. Because that's what Paul is saying. He says that being citizens of the kingdom of God means being unified in one spirit and we will behave accordingly. And of course this means behaving like this to one another within the church family as well as outwardly to the world. What use is it to go out of our way to show kindness and compassion, etc. to others if we're impatient and ungracious to those in our church family. Paul goes on to say, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we will strive as one for the faith of the gospel. I was reading, and I think this is so true, that when people are really in earnest and their beliefs really matter to them, that unfortunately this is when quarrels can happen. Because the greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that disagreement and argument will happen. But then, this is when the authority we recognise becomes clear. I know that it's possible to disagree about matters within the church. But if firm belief in the absolute authority of Jesus is agreed, then I believe it's possible to work out our differences, primarily by going back, step by step, to a point where we can agree and letting the power of Jesus lead us on from there. And of course, this is where Paul's letter goes now in chapter 2. He shows the Philippians how it's possible for them to live a life that reflects the love of God in every part, giving them joy in serving others and one another. Paul doesn't say it's easy, but in this beautiful passage, gives Jesus himself as the example to follow, saying this should be their attitude, the same as that of Jesus that they can have joy in serving. 
in, and joy in serving if they imitate Christ's humility. So, these first few verses in chapter 2, Paul says, and I'm going to read this from the message version. We've just heard it when Anne read it. But I'll read it from the message version as it's slightly amplified. If you've got anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favour. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And Paul is saying living worthy of the gospel isn't just about a matter of persevering against external opposition, but also about internal unity, being like-minded, in partnership with one another. And this is only possible by having an attitude of mind that belongs to the gospel. Humility. Paul is saying that standing firm and striving for the gospel can only be attained living in this partnership with one another. He says it's impossible to contend for the gospel against those who oppose it while it is effectively being denied by our lives together. And it's impossible to long for the glory of the Lord Jesus while at the same time wanting our own vain glory. So Paul says, as you have experienced how the gospel of Jesus has called you into relationship with the living God, work out that same experience of gospel unity in your own relationships. And Paul has begun by speaking about their feelings of love and compassion and tenderness. But he goes on to remind them, it's not just those feelings, it's a determination to be alike in mind and that that will enable them to work to spread the gospel like-minded in seeking God's kingdom, but thinking of each other first, thinking more of the needs, of others' needs and their own. And these are all things we, need, we know, but just imagine a community where that was 100% the case. Because Paul warns against selfish ambition, personal prestige and concentration on self. These, he says, are the causes of disunity. And of course we know this, but I think we must examine ourselves always just to make sure what our motives are. The things that should cure this disunity are things that, ways we are already living, but we must be very conscious of these things. The things, Paul says, that should cure this disunity is the fact that we are all in Christ. William Barclay puts it like this. I've read quite a lot of William Barclay about this because I, I liked what he said. No one can walk in disunity with others and in unity with Christ. If they have Christ as the companion of their way, then they are inevitably the companion of every wayfarer. And he goes on to say something which I've realised for some time. And I've actually come to this, I love it just occasionally when God shows you something for yourself, that you come to realise by yourself and then you find out that someone else has written about it. And this, this was wonderful for me. And I expect it is something we've all realised, but I still think it's amazing. That a person's relationships with others 
are no bad indication of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think that's something very much to think about. A person's relationship with others are no bad indication of their relationship with Jesus Christ. And the second thing that Paul says uh, is a cure for the disunity is the power of Christian love. That's what should keep us unified. Because Christian love isn't a mere reaction of the heart as human love is. It is a victory of the will achieved with the help of Jesus Christ. And in this little book that I was reading, there was a quote from a book by a man called Richard Tatlock. And the book is called In My Father's House. And he writes this description. Hell is the eternal condition of those who have made relationship with God and their fellows an impossibility through lives which have destroyed love. Heaven, on the other hand, is the eternal condition of those who have found real life in relationships through love with God and their fellows. So Christian love should keep us unified. It's not just a reaction of the heart as human love is. It is a victory of the will achieved with the help of Jesus Christ. And then the fact that we share in the Holy Spirit should keep us from disunity. William Barclay says, it's the Holy Spirit that binds us to God and to each other. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to live that life of love, which is the life of God. And the existence of human compassion should keep us from disunity. God created us for relationship with him and with one another. And then, of course, finally, lastly, Paul appeals to the Philippians that for them to continue in unity will bring him joy. So we come to these verses, 5 to 11, where Paul says, the attitude you should have should be the same that Jesus had. Paul wrote in his letters to the Corinthians that Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. And here he illustrates this in this lovely passage in such a great and moving way. He's pleading with the Philippians to lay aside their disagreements, to live in harmony, to get rid of all personal ambition and pride and to have in their hearts that humble, selfless desire to serve which was the essence of the life of Christ. Also, of course, to Paul, thought and action were always bound together. How he thought was how he lived. And so he's asking the Philippians to have the same attitude as Jesus so that that attitude will lead them to have lives of humility, obedience and self-renunciation as Jesus' life was. Jesus didn't desire to dominate people, only to serve them. He didn't desire his way, but God's way. He didn't want to exalt himself, but to renounce all his glory for the sake of humankind. But as Paul goes on to say, that self-renunciation led to worship. Jesus wins the hearts of people. He doesn't demand love and worship. These are in response to the sacrifice he has made. In worship, we don't say we can't resist the power of Jesus. We can't resist a might like that. We say, we sing, as we just have. Love so amazing, so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. And of course, in this passage, passage, Paul talks about the name that is given to Jesus, that is above every name. And that name is Lord, 
Master. And Paul says, one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the early church, this actually was the only creed. Paul says in Romans, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you have believed and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And that was the passage that William read earlier in our service today. The passage that ended with saying it's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God. Jesus is my master, embracing body and soul. God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting him to do it for you. That's salvation. With your whole being, you embrace God, setting things right, and then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between him and me. And if we think about this, this is what we're longing to tell people today. This realisation that Jesus is master, Jesus is Lord of my life. And we want to tell people, we want to show people, we want to behave as citizens of God and proclaim that so that other people come to know that truth for themselves. But I think one of the core things about this, and William Barclay says, someone may not be able to put into words, and he's not talking about Christians, he's talking about people who don't know yet and then who come to faith. They may not be able to put into words who and what they believe Jesus to be, but as long as there is in their heart this wondering love and in their life this unquestioning obedience, they can, they are a Christian. Because Christianity consists less in the mind's understanding than it does in the heart's love. And all of this, Paul reminds us at the end of verse 11, is to bring glory to God the Father. Jesus has not emptied himself, made himself nothing, and taken on the nature of a servant, and been obedient to death on the cross to win the love and worship of humankind for himself, but to the glory of God. And that's, again, where we have to examine ourselves. Why do we do what we do? What is our motivation? Why do we live the lives we do? Is it all to bring glory to God? Every single thing we do. Paul's message is that we should stand firm in the spirit and to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel, as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so, I'm thinking again, can we be recognised by others? Are we identifiable as being like-minded? And as I was thinking this, it made me think, and I know these are the two ministries that I'm involved in, street pastors and house of bread. And particularly street pastors, because it just suddenly came to me um, that that is how I feel being a street pastor. I know we're identifiable, actually, by our uniforms. Um, but it's more than that. Uh, some, I was on duty last night and somebody said to me, I'm sure I've met you in Chester. And when people say things like that, it absolutely thrills me because it's not me. It's, it's God's love in me that they recognise because they've met that some, in someone else. And that is so thrilling. 
We're different characters. We're from so many different walks of life. But people who meet us find the same non-judgmental compassion and generosity of spirit and eagerness to show God's love through action. And also, because of the nature of the ministry, and we're all from different churches, and I was discussing this last night with the other street pastors, what it is that makes us feel so unified. Um, And it is because we don't perhaps know so much about each other as we do in our own church families. And so it gets rid, perhaps, of some of the things that don't matter so much. And it is all about the joy of serving. So actually we're looking out rather than looking in at ourselves. We're looking out to see what we can do. And I think as well in Stafford, I absolutely loved, I said about, you know, we didn't have a service last week because we were at the Love Stafford celebration. And that's an example of this. That's an example of all the Christian ministries in Stafford coming together Um, But rather than sort of being churches together, working inwardly together, it's churches and ministries together working outwardly. And actually at the moment, across the nation, the Christian community is being turned to in this time of austerity. And I've heard people say, oh, you know, is it right to put it on the church? Is it right to put it on faith groups? But what an opportunity. We are citizens of another kingdom. And we want to enable others to join us. As Paul says, we need to be not just united against opposition, but united in our lives together. And it's in this unity, this selfless love, that is evident in every part of our lives, that makes the gospel attractive and reaches out to bring others in to the life of love that God wants for everybody. It is impossible to contend for the gospel against those who oppose it while it is effectively being denied by our lives together. And it's impossible to long for the glory of the Lord Jesus while at the same time wanting our own vain glory. If we are serious about our desire to serve our Lord and to bring his gospel to others, we can do this, as Paul says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, valuing others above ourselves. And as we have the example of Jesus to follow, he who was God took the form of a servant to live and die so that we could know salvation. We, Paul says, are called to live a life that imitates this, a life of humility a life of obedience and self-renunciation as Jesus' life was. And so let's pray that with the help of the Holy Spirit we are able to do this more and more, to serve each other, to bring the knowledge of God's love to others and to do this not for any other reason but to bring glory to God our Father in thankfulness and in praise. Amen.